from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 13, Son of Godzilla. G-Fans and Kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherchel. And in this episode, we will be discussing Son of Godzilla, which is well-remembered, though not necessarily for all the right reasons. (laughs) It's not quite as infamous as some of the other Godzilla films, but it does have a little bit of infamy attached to it. It is a very different film. We have had a whole series of very different films so far in this series lately. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, the this one kind of defies classification. <laughs> we were having a little bit of trouble trying to figure out how we were going to talk about this beforehand. And exactly what kind of a movie this is, even. Our related topics for this episode are weather control, extreme weather, and the three non-nuclear principles. All right, I'm looking forward to this. But before we get before we get into any of this discussion, we have the film description. Take it away, Brian. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a character, specifically a parental figure. Anthropomorphisms are abundant with him. Minia is a newborn baby Godzilla. Clumsy, curious, and energetic, he often gets himself into trouble with the other monsters on Soljel Island. He behaves much like a human child, doing things like throwing a tantrum. Several six-foot mantises, dubbed Kamakaris, inhabit the island. They mutate to a height of 50 meters after the weather control experiment, and they viciously attack Minia, presumably to eat him, and battle the other monsters for dominance. Kumunga is a giant spider native to Soljel Island, but it isn't mutated. It attacks monsters and humans alike, either because it intends to eat them or to defend its territory. Goromaki is a reporter who parachutes onto Soljel looking for a scoop. He agrees to become the team's cook so that he can stay and observe their experiments. Professor Kasumi is the leader of the team conducting the weather control experiments in the hopes of developing a way to cultivate arid areas of the world. Saiko Matsumiya is the ornery but resourceful orphan daughter of a Japanese archaeologist, she survived alone on the island for seven years and wants to leave Soljel Island. As the film progresses, the human and kaiju plots become increasingly intertwined. The humans are at first mostly unaware of the monsters and have goals that have nothing to do with them. The scientists ward off the smaller Kamakuras with rifles. Godzilla kills two of the three giant mantises to save Minia. Later, Minia fights the last Kamakuras to save Psycho, but fails. He tries to fight Kumanga after Psycho calls to him, but he falls prey to the spider. Kumanga kills the last Kamakuras by webbing it and injecting it with its venom from its stinger. Godzilla and Minia battle Kumanga, and Godzilla eventually burns it to death. The humans launch another weather control capsule into the atmosphere to freeze the island, putting Godzilla and Minia into hibernation. With a script co-written by Shinichi Sekizawa and Koize Shiba, the story is simple, fun, and lighthearted. Unlike Sekizawa's early scripts, the conflicts are resolved by both the humans and the kaiju. Deeper relationships between the characters, most notably Goro and Saiko, are implied. The budget is lower than previous entries. 
The special effects were again directed by Sadamasa Arikawa, with supervision by Tsuburaya. Arikawa utilized puppets and marionettes to portray the insect kaiju, often having as many as 20 puppeteers on stage. The Minyas suit was made to resemble both Godzilla and a human baby. The Godzilla suit, made to look maternal and more like Minya, is one of the most disfavored among the fanbase, though it was supposed to be for Godzilla vs. Red Moon, which was targeted to child audiences. This has the lightest tone of any Godzilla film so far. Humor is abundant in both the human and kaiju plots, although the latter has more slapstick. Regardless, the events of the film do have some gravity. The film is more fantastical than realistic. This isn't an experimental film for 1967, also known as the Year of the Kaiju. Many other kaiju movies aimed at younger audiences, such as those of Godzilla's rival Gamera, were popular at the time. This film is an expansion of style for the Godzilla series because it introduces the concept of a Godzilla offspring, which is repeated in later films. The studio intended to target the date crowd, meaning young couples, with this film by introducing a cute monster they thought would be liked by girls. The film sold 2,480,000 tickets when released in December 1967 and had an additional 610,000 attendees when re-released in August 1973. Like the previous film, it was only shown on television in 1969. Overall, the fanbase gives the movie mixed reviews. The changes to the dub version were minor. The prologue where Godzilla is spotted by a military airplane was deleted. The dub dialogue changes Kumanga to Spiga, Kamakuras to Gymantis, and Saiko to Reiko. The film features scientists conducting weather control experiments by seeding clouds. Unbeknownst to everyone, Fujisaki destroys the radio on orders from Professor Kusumi so they can stay. Furukawa goes stir-crazy for fear of being marooned on an island of monsters. Half the characters contract a tropical disease at the midpoint of the film. Goro's determination to find a story puts him at odds with the scientists who want to maintain their project's secrecy. The scientists are concerned that humanity's increasing population would cause food shortages, so they wanted to manipulate the weather to increase crop yields. Professor Kusumi mentions that the project had to be kept secret because such technology could be as dangerous as a nuclear bomb. Goro remarks that Godzilla treats Minya like a Japanese education fanatic who doesn't let his children play. Regardless, Minya grows up by helping his adoptive father battle the island's giant insects. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part two of the podcast, it will be our opinion and discussion section for the film. So, Brian... You like Son of Godzilla? I do. I don't know. I think this movie is another one of those ones that gets a little bit of a hard time from fans and just people who happen to be randomly watching it because it's one of those. Once you figure out what they're trying to go for, you know that that is what helps us understand a lot of these Godzilla movies is what the, what the purpose is, and that's why that's so important. Uh, I, I do like it though. I think it's overall a, a good idea is something that I probably would not have thought about creating if I was the people who controlled the franchise and decided what to do. I don't know how I would have thought of this idea. This is actually one that I think I ended up watching much later compared to some of the other movies. It was a little bit Same harder here. to find. It was a little yeah. bit harder to find. So I don't have as much 
nostalgia attached to it. Unlike, say, Ebera Horror of the Deep that we talked about in a previous episode, I have a lot of nostalgia attached to that. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, this was, that was the movie that preceded this one and had, has a lot of in common with Son of Godzilla, but I just didn't see this one until much later. So, at least in its entirety, I did, there were clips of it that show up as stock footage later on and i saw those and i remember being just wondering where the heck is that from yeah it's definitely easy to pick out what stock you know where all these movies which movies the stock footage came from this one's especially easy but yeah uh, but it's it's interesting in that respect but it's also very much in line with these sorts of genre films there's a lot of son of inject movie monster here sort of films that had been produced you know there was a, there was a son of frankenstein there was a daughter of dracula there was bride of frankenstein yeah bride of son frankenstein of kong. son of kong that was actually love that one yeah it, stuff like that so it definitely fits in with all of that so it's not a terrible stretch to think that a film like this would be produced eventually one thing i like about this movie is it was filmed pretty well i think it was a good job uh, in that respect well you had jun fakuda coming back for this one yeah and he he knows how to film a lot of these movies really well too he understood the the technical way of how to tell a story with the camera which is extremely important i guess the only caveat that i would throw in with that is you can tell that there's a bit less money b- being thrown around with yeah. this uh and that's not uh that as we've said that's a that's a trend but at the same time, you you get you end up seeing that a, a little bit, and I think when you like the, the thing I love about this though is I'm talking about the other monsters in it, particularly the mantises and our the wonderful spider, which yes, they tw- are twenty fantastic. people, twenty people on on you know working on the set just to try to move that around. There, I think I even read that. For the Kumanga puppet, I think it required two to three people for each leg to man it, which is insane. And they but do it pays off. Good, yeah, it they, pays they do off. A very it, good job. It looks wonderful the way the, the way it's shot. You know, I probably the way it's the camera is positioned on it. It probably helps to hide some things, but it's just the way it moves. It looks very natural. Yeah, it. it I mean, it made me think a lot of Shilob. Like if if they had made. The Return of the King way back then, this might have been how they would have done that. I don't know if they would have had any other option of how to do it. They really put a lot of effort into that. And so, again, it's sort of like they got the money that was that may have been better. This is really something that we need to put it into, actually, is, is this, because you have to make that part look good. And so instead you get a little bit of kind of rough around the edges with, some of the sets yeah and this is a little... yeah you can tell that this was they split this a lot between a sound stage and there is some on location filming which that's but, nice yeah on-location but you nice. can tell that they were switching between between them a lot and it's it's more jarring at first in the movie i will say the but, base the yeah. set of the base is kind of like oh yeah okay i i get it I can imagine enough. I can imagine my way out of this. You know, yeah. I, it's not going to, it didn't kill yeah, me by any means, but at the same time, it's, it's almost a little hard to not 
notice yeah. in the back of your head or something. Oh, it's not the but, same as mm. as with the previous movie because I do. There was some stuff they obviously did on sound stages for the previous movie that but, looked a lot better. Though. But it did look better <laughs> it, and it looked a bit more polished. But again, they they didn't have a you know, this eight legged thing that they had to puppeteer around with. And, yeah, and all see, the, the strings it, and it's a and and that's the big production. That's the interesting thing because. Besides Godzilla and Minya, which are obviously done with suits, the other monsters are all puppets and marionettes. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths of these movies is even when the budgets are going down, you can tell in most of them anyway, that there's a lot of effort and craftsmanship and artistry that they're trying to squeeze into there as much as they can with the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. I think actually... One of the best scenes in the movie related to Kamanga actually doesn't involve the puppet that they used for the monster scenes. It's those sequences when Kumanga is trying to get at our human heroes with its stinger. And they had that massive prop that they had built that they would stick in and they would actually interact with the actors and try to get at them. They did it twice and it was fantastic both times. It's just, it's not something that you see very often anymore. And I know some people might look at that prop and that sequence and kind of laugh at it a little bit, but I thought it was incredibly effective. Getting to the the suits. I mean, I know that I know that this suit for Godzilla is probably one of the more unpopular ones. It seems among the fan base. It just, to me, it just looks weird, but there's, like we, like we said in part one, it was partially made for a, another movie geared very much towards children, uh, Godzilla versus Red Moon. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of it. And then they made it more matron, matronly or maternal or whatever maternal, you want to yeah. put into that description. Um, I, I, I the nickname, eyes are just – the eyes look really weird. The, the eyes are what kill it for me. I can deal with the, with the weird – girth but it's the eyes and the face that really kill it for me i have long nicknamed this thing frogzilla Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it was it was designed to look more like minya and they made minya look like a combination of godzilla and gave him features that made him look like a human baby and that and that's i think i have more i I have my brain just registered more reservations uh, about the minya suit than the godzilla suit ever would have i just it's just a bit hard. It's not like a not like I had to see Jar Jar Binks, you know. Like the, yeah, I was about to say this is I don't. Minya is kind of the Jar Jar Binks of this franchise, oh, unfortunately. I, it's not. I don't want to be that unfair. <laughs> but the, this this every movie franchise just, has one. Trust me. Well, I, think I this understand. Is way better than that. It's more in terms of this is the one character that the vast majority of people in the fan base would say, "Oh, I don't like this character," or "I flat out hate this character." Or for me, it's not as much as I dislike it or hate it. I think it's just like it's um, just makes me scratch my head and I think, okay, well, I, I can, I can deal. But at the same time, I I would have probably gone with something that looked a little different. I don't know. W- when you create a character like this, it's tough. I mean, when with Son of Kong, I mean, we had to accept Kiko, but I I think I accepted Kiko a lot easier than this because Kiko for those of you who haven't seen Son of Kong it's just it looks like it's basically a smaller albino version of Kong mm-hmm. it's I thought it was pretty easy to get around it and 
move on. I think it mixed in with everything else pretty well. But yeah, uh, but, it's, but I think it's because the little, effects are better. Yeah, this was just a bit. It was different, definitely than that. But although I do think the animosity is less because of this movie and more because of a later movie. Probably, yeah. The thing with the suit is, though, if it had just been a miniature version of Godzilla, would that have just been, like, too easy? It just You'd just be staring at it saying, oh, it's a shorter Godzilla. Right. That's all it is. Yeah. Now, so, so at I least think, they didn't do that. I mean, yeah, they, they didn't did do that, that. It would have been almost boring. Yeah, and I think it, it, you know, it helps to make Minya look different different enough oh yeah it stands out they, they definitely got that part. yeah they definitely got that <laughs> you got that part nailed they, they got, yeah yeah but but you're probably right it it would have been too easy although some would probably argue it would have been more realistic because baby reptiles generally just look like very tiny versions of grown-up reptiles anyway essentially and just wait for things to grow in and all that meaning the you know the plates on uh yeah, the plates Which I could definitely back. see. Yeah, yeah. It, would, it would take a while. But Godzilla is a dinosaur and a fictional dinosaur at that. So you can make stuff up and it's totally okay. But it's interesting that Minya has such ire. And and I don't think that this is necessarily the filmmakers saying that they, do, they didn't like Minya. But it's interesting how there's some actual slapstick in a lot of the monster stuff in this, and it involves Minya, and usually Minya getting hit in the head. Yeah, or otherwise physical humor of some kind regarding Minya, yeah. Yeah, either... Stepping you know, on his tail. Stepping on him, his tail, making him blow him, fire. Yeah. Or the the mantises try to, uh, you know, hit a rock, and they're trying to hit Godzilla, and it baffs, uh-huh. you know, Minya in the head, <laughs> he passes out, and I'm just... It's like, wow, depending on how you want to look at this, you could say the filmmakers hate Minya, too. They keep abusing him. There was that part in G Fan Magazine, though, that uh, because we, I went to the panel discussion at G Fest 2017 for this movie, and and someone brought up how there's an article in G Fan Magazine where it talked about just how the actor who was inside the Minya suit was, was just some sort of tyrant on the set <laughs> and was just like terrorizing the the heck out of everybody, like it. Uh, I think that would have been interesting. I don't know exactly if how much that really happened, but I mean, supposedly that that's that's how it went down. But I thought, wow, this is uh, this this movie is definitely centered around Minya, whether you're making it or or whether you're seeing it. it Minya is definitely the the key factor here, and and that's one reason why we say. This is um, this movie is an expansion of style over the previous Godzilla movies. We we get a son of Godzilla and an offspring. Fir- yeah, and this is the first. Yeah, son of isn't literal. No. Yeah, because he's he's adopted. Yeah, but this is an expansion of style because we get the offspring of Godzilla, and then we, we have this return at, at various points throughout the series, and it is there, there's that parental association going on i mean it's a it's a totally different type of godzilla story yeah it's it's a very it's very different the the interactions that you see between godzilla and minya were intentionally done to mimic a relationship between a human parent and a human child minya behaves very much like a child he throws a tantrum and 
he's goofy and clumsy and likes to play and the, doesn't like being educated, you know, because Godzilla is trying to teach him how to breathe fire and roar and all of that. And he doesn't necessarily look like he's having the most fun. No, and so, so instead, we, throughout, the ser- throughout the movie, we have um, a series of, like, disciplinary actions. I don't want to say disciplinarian, but it, it's uh, definitely kind of a tough love par- yeah. parenting style. Yeah, it's something that I think a lot of modern American parents... They don't operate might, like this. Yeah, they may be a little yeah. bit put off by it. But at because, the same time, but we're going way back in... Well, not way back in time. It's not like this was forever ago, but it is... Uh, the the parental dynamic in Japan it's a very old school different yeah a very old school Japanese to, yeah, parenting style yeah, compared to compared to just now the way parents raise their kids yeah I think in the, this country I think the the one specific scene that might be the most troublesome is when Minya does not want to try to blow I think it's he doesn't want to try to breathe fire and Godzilla actually raises his hand yeah, yeah. at him. It's just something you have to understand. That was, yeah, was kind that of, was how things were done back don't then. Don't make me hit you. Yeah. Ugh. It was just how things were done in Japan at that time. You know, I had read that it, it was it was more acceptable. I mean, yeah, I remember much when, more acceptable. I mean, I don't want to sound super old here, but when I went to elementary school, they still had the paddle. Yeah. I mean, this this kind of thing I had, was around. I had parents who were not afraid of spanking. <laughs> Yeah, and the whole spanking debate is you know, one of those endless debates that goes on. But uh, yeah, yeah, this is. I think this is an interesting, uh, an interesting thing about how to raise children. I mean, it's not like it's teaching you how to raise children. I mean, not like it's giving an ex- this is an example or this some sort of instructory no. video. <laughs> but at the same time, it is. Uh, it does demonstrate how a parenting dynamic works in uh, in a Godzilla movie, which this is something that we've never. That's never happened up to this point in the series. I mean, we just now recently had our first young adult movie. And now this is, well, I think that's where we can sort of move this discussion into what was this movie supposed to be? So <laughs> it's hard to figure out because a little bit. I mean, we know why the studio did what it did. Yeah. They the wanted, they wanted and, to and make a date turn. movie essentially. Yeah, yeah. For couples. And then, that from the fiscal end of this, that makes sense because you're you're getting not just one person to buy a ticket, but you're getting a guy to bring his girlfriend or date or what have you along. So that's two tickets. Yeah. And as you and I have been learning in our time in the fandom, cute monsters are loved by the women who may be in the fan base. They love sure. the cute things. But when you watch the movie, I don't I just kept thinking to myself, you really thought this was going to be a date movie because I think your intention was to make a date movie, but what you ended up producing was something more like a children's movie. A kids movie. movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it so essentially was I'm just it like, became something else over yeah, time. Yeah, so I'm just like where was where was the divide here? What happened? I don't understand. Is it just is it just how it naturally played out, or was there some sort of decision made during the production of this movie where it changed? I don't think it. I don't think that they changed. It changed during the production. I think just over time, it became more of a something that looked more like a kids' movie because there's a kid Godzilla in it. It made sense at the time. And it allowed you to connect that more with with what was going on right when they made it and released it. 
But if you don't know that it was a date movie initially, I don't know that I would have watched this movie and somehow concluded that this was a date movie. I that, never, that, I don't in, think that would have crossed in all my, mind. And all the times I've seen it, I've never once thought, oh, this was a date movie. I've always thought it was a children's movie. That's Rather, why it was kind a, of children's movie if it's a children's uh, yeah. movie. But it's, it, 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 I chalked it up as more of a children's movie. But I it, so it's one of those. One of those things where they made it for a very specific reason, and then the perception of that reason changed over time. I mean, it's not like when they sell the DVD of this movie that they have, you know, this is a bring your date. No. <laughs> there, there isn't that, that direct connection. Maybe 1960s Japan just had a very different take on what a date movie is. Or, what, or just what specific demographics they were going for, because this is really specific. I know it's highly specific. specific, You would think that they were, it was intended to kind to appeal to the same audience as Ebera or at least a part of that audience. But But there aren't any young people. No. Well, not really. The the youngest person there is, is psycho and Goro. Mm. And there's very oblique, subtle references that they may have a thing for each other, but that's the closest you get to any sort of romantic relationship in this, which is what I generally think of when I think of a date movie. Yeah, I mean, while the movie we just saw, Eberat, that's it had young people in it all over the place. Yeah. Young people movie. Okay, that makes sense. And they're off on this adventure where they're constantly getting in over their heads and having these daring last-minute escapes and all of these sorts of things, where in this one, it's... There's much less of that. There aren't really any villains in this movie, unless Nor you want to count there, the monsters. No. Nor is there a. There isn't. A, there isn't. Unlike the last movie, there isn't a dynamic between. Oh, what happens next? There isn't that what happens next kind of story. And no. Instead, we, we have we have specific things that are set out that need to happen. Yeah, it would have maybe made more sense as a date movie if there were younger people in it. But I don't know how you're going to shoehorn all these young people into a story such as this. I don't think you can. I mean, like you, I you said, you could, I mean, it wouldn't I mean, make you any could, sense. but it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. That's, I mean, the inclusion of Goro is really the closest that you can get. And, you know, he's the, you know, the young intrepid reporter who thinks he can find a school, find a story here. Right. You know, and I, I don't know so if any it, young people would have been able to relate to that. They might be able to, or be able to relate to being, Climatologist, science yeah. scientists on a remote South Pacific island. Well, I do think, I do think some of the some of the young men might have actually gotten it because there's especially early on before Psycho is introduced. There's very much a kind of a we're a bunch of guys living together sort of dynamic thing going on. You know, like the yeah. like that actually one Fraternal piece of, yeah, water, yeah yeah very like that almost crass joke that they have early on when Goro was trying to wash lettuce for himself to eat and one guy says oh yeah the other guy washed washed his boxers Uh in it you know that sort of a thing that's the sort of thing you know I lived in a college dormitory that's the sort of crap that goes down and just like that well yeah and I was in a fraternity I mean you wouldn't even want to know but there's there's a lot that I think happens in this movie along along those lines sure Um, as far as the as far as the interactions between the the characters and there's also again just like the last movie 
I really question how much influence Gilligan's Island had on this <laughs> stuff because it's there are some interesting coincidences between that show and this movie. Just as far as you know, it's set up on an island. They end up don't the communications end up coming down? Yes. Yeah. The ra- I mean, the Parata's character actually destroys the radio, so they have an excuse to stay longer because the professor told him to do it. Yeah. So and then like we we so they are essentially stranded. Yeah. There and and so there's some interesting parallels, and of course this was the like the heyday of, of when Gilligan's Island was going on. I yeah. Mean, and so like the um, it's just rather coincidental that we get all these island this island motif put into both of these movies and one one following the other just in in the second year but anyway it was just a nagging nagging thing that i was feeling every time i i watched this yeah the atmosphere is pretty good though i mean it's it is it does have continuity it does make sense the the funny things in in the story don't seem unnaturally just thrown in. No, they know, don't. And, and it's like, very character driven. Yeah. It's and, very much, you know, cause Goro shows up and he says, I'm here cause I'm going to find a story and I'm not moving. Yeah. He, and then he, he almost yeah, acts so like he, he's almost like a child. He's like, no, I yeah. sit here and I'm not going anywhere. But he does drive the, the story forward in a number of ways and his relationship with the good girl that we don't see in any other Godzilla movies at all. But she, I think she's pretty good. She was pretty young when they were, yeah, making she was about this. 19. Yeah. I looked that up. I don't I know if I, to, I don't know if I'd be intimidated on a set like that or not. I mean, I definitely feel left not left out, but definitely uh, on my own for sure. Yeah, um, she's I, pretty I, good though. She's pretty good. Admittedly, I mean, she's cute and she's resourceful. I do think I like Dio from the previous movie a bit more, although that might also be because it was Kumi Mizuno. So, and she's a fantastic actress. So it's hard to beat. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to. It's sort of like the. The peanuts, you know, once you see the perfect island girl with Kumi Mizuno, then the other island girls are just, uh, and the other actors are good too. They're, we got Akihiko Harata back. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and this is our second Akira Kubo movie because mm-hmm. our first one was a uh, monster zero mm-hmm. where, where he, and he looks pretty different, you know, cause they had him all, you know, nerded out. Yeah. I loved the, the rapport that Harata had with the, with the professor. They had a wonderful relationship. You could tell without us being told anything that these guys are probably best friends and have worked together for a long time. They they had that sort of rapport with each other. Yeah, it it looked very natural. Yeah, and that's that's why I you know we mentioned in part one that with the character relationships with a lot of them, there's always these kind of implied deeper relationships that are going on, and this is another example. Another great example of the humor in this is at the toward the end of the movie after the cloud seeding technology has been launched to freeze the island and then Goro and Saikyo come in. He's telling the professor something. It has nothing to do with the fact that the temperature on the island is dropping, but he sneezes in the middle of his sentence. So it's showing you that he was just outside and the island's getting colder even though he's not there to tell you that it's getting colder. Yeah, that's a good way to, to get that in there. Yeah. Once again, we have Masaru Sato doing the score in this movie. And I actually found myself liking it more than I remembered from my previous viewings of the movie. I like the jazzy sort of feel that it has. Yeah. I particularly, for some odd reason, like the track that he plays 
when the Kamakuruses first appear in their giant forms. It's that kind of staccato drum beat, you know, that plays that really gives it really gives this sense of tension as the monsters are wandering around and the humans are trying to hide behind towers so they don't get spotted. I like the music from this one. I think almost almost as much as I like the music from the last one. You know, Sato did both of them. I, I really like Sato when he does the music for these Godzilla movies. I think the he do, the ones that he does the scores for, I think, are very appropriate for the kind of music he makes. Yeah. yeah he's, he's really big, you know, internationally renowned music writer from Japan. Just very, very good. And another... Another little characterization thing that that I really appreciated was, and it was, it was just a nice little thing, a little tick for the character, and that was, I love how the professor was always chomping on a pipe. Mm-hmm. He's just he's always got a pipe in his hand, and he's just he's just got it there, no rhyme or reason for it. It's just a thing he does. Idiosyncrasy. It's just mm-hmm. a little idiosyncrasy. It helped to make him seem like more like a real person, a more fleshed out character. Even though we don't have to have anything explained to us or anything yeah. about him at all. It's a nice touch, though. Mm-hmm. Some of these movies, I wonder what I would have thought if I had seen them at the appropriate age. Some of, And, like, with this one, what is the appropriate age, even? If I was a little kid, I don't know if I would have gotten it very much at all with the, with the, the, the parenting and stuff. I, I think this is... I, think, I guess if I saw it at the time that it was made the target you know the target audience would have been young adults and i'm and again i'm not really sure i don't know if that would have been a movie that i would have brought a date to yeah i know or what the date what would the date have thought i I don't know that (laughs) minya was cute apparently that's what they thought would happen huh i like there's a godzilla baby you know in this and and so like is the girls love babies? Are, are we? Uh, yeah. So, well, they like the cuteness part. Yeah, that's for sure. But, and then there's there's this interesting connection, like a because when researching all of this, I I actually saw a graph of the birth rate in Japan, and that's uh, a rather salient issue. There was a big crash in, in 1966 regarding uh, the birth rate, and so I had to looked this up and asked, okay, why in the world did this happen? Actually, something related to superstition and astrology. Like, every 60 yeah. years, there is uh, a year in, 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 in astrology in Japan where they, um, they think that the women who are going to be born from that year, that they end up being firehorse women and that they would be very... Uh, strong-minded women and that they would be uh, really tough and considered, I guess, bad luck for the, the man that they marry. And, and so, and thankfully this only happens every 60 years. It's a yeah. nice, at least it's not every nine or something, but we also have the fact that you couldn't tell if you were going to have a girl or not. And so I, I guess maybe if the technology had been different, that there would have just been way more men born that year. But I guess there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of induced abortions, and it was because they they just didn't want to risk the the child being a girl, and so it was like I I don't know if that would really happen 
in the, the 60 years later from that though. I yeah, because it's due to it, that year is supposed to roll around again in 2026. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how a superstition like this fares over a period of 60 years. I, I, it probably would be a completely different reaction now or in, in, later on in, from this, but it, it is very interesting. But and I also, but I also think, well, there's an interesting coincidence that this is the first movie after that took place, and that it's that it features a baby Godzilla and that the movie is made for uh, dating couples. Yeah. And I thought, okay, is this like supposed to kick the birth rate back up or something? Like, I'm going to go home and I'm go home after seeing the movie. And it's like, Oh, the baby Godzilla baby was too. so great. Then let's just go ahead and have one right now. <laughs> I don't know. Fine. Okay, honey, I'll go find that egg and some giant mantises. I mean, yeah, get the giant mantises to open it or something. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, but I think it's, it, I think it is rather an interesting coincidence that this is the year after the, the crash and the birth rate. And I know that this had to have been a pretty big story at the time that it, you know, especially the year after it happened. But the year of it, I'm I'm sure that it was a rather large societal deal, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So the ending of this movie is. Is interesting for a lot of reasons. First off, I, as far as I know, this is the only kaiju battle that takes place during a snowstorm. Yeah, it's an interesting mix of a uh, of weather combined with this kaiju battle. I mean, it, I suppose it could have been other weather that they could have thrown in. Snow is definitely easier than rain. Yeah, rather than just getting everything all wet. Yeah, and so that it makes sense as far as practicality i think it looks yeah. pretty it does i mean i just i just find all snow pretty and like winter's <laughs> my favorite season sorry folks but <laughs> it, it i think it i think that is cool um but the end the ending though with uh with minya and godzilla it's on poignant. the island and, oh it's very poignant i it's mean a very interesting set of emotions that you have walking out of this. yeah i i mean as much hate as as minya gets as much hate as this movie gets I think you would have to be completely heartless to watch the end of this thing and not feel something. Yeah, it's it's definitely getting you to to feel something and it's getting you to It's just it's just this wonderful touching scene of despite the snow it's a warm yeah, feeling that it gets. Yeah, you. it's just this wonderful scene of Godzilla embracing Minya. And just kind of holding him close, almost as if he's saying, "It's it's going to be okay. We're we're gonna we're just gonna hibernate for a little bit. We'll be yeah, that's fine." The, that, yeah, that's the less disciplinarian. Uh, yeah, parent there, uh, giving comfort. Yeah, he says it's, he's just telling it's going to be okay. You know, we're just going to go to sleep for a little while. And this is definitely the first time Godzilla's hugged anyone. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. the last the last keep also keep in mind, how long has he been taking care of Minya? Not a couple long. of days, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously he's obviously gotten attached to the little guy. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I think it's wonderful. You yeah, know. it was it was a good idea. Yeah, good it, idea for a way to end it's it. It's a it's not often that you get such an emotional ending like this in one of these movies, which helps to set it apart. I think is better than falling into the ocean. <laughs> this, makes, this works better for this movie yeah most definitely <laughs> I think that uh, that about covers everything for part two let's move on to part three of the podcast 
You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part three of the podcast, we cover a related topic that is either brought up by the film or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. And so for this one, we chose three topics. Weather control, extreme weather, and the three non-nuclear principles. And of course, the three non-nuclear principles is uh, what was going on in Japan at the time. And the other two were uh, brought up directly by the film. So first, weather control. So first, let's talk about how this was portrayed in, in the film, because there's weather control in, in American movies sometimes. A lot of and, places. And stories. But in this one, we don't really get a a typical sci-fi American trope of, oh, they're, they're tampering in... Uh, God's domain. God's domain thing. That, that's not really going on in this movie. We, it's not really tampering, but instead it's a a lesson about unleashing science and having the right ethics to make good decisions. Because they're they're doing this project because they want to increase crop yields, and so they're figuring out how to how to make weather more predictable. Yeah, they want to be able to cultivate the arid portions of the globe in order to grow more crops there which is a noble goal definitely and it's it's interesting because usually when you have weather control being such a huge part of a story it's not being used for benign purposes it's usually much more malevolent than that. You know, it's being used as a weapon or as a form of ransom or something like that. Superman three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not to say that there aren't other instances of it being used for, for benevolent purposes, but they're in the background as opposed to being at the forefront of the story. As a scientific trope of weather control. I mean, this, this goes back to a lot of humanity and how humanity all the time has been subject to all kinds of really bad weather and disasters. I mean, Japan has to put up with tons of disasters of all kinds. They have very little arable land. And, and so they have high population density in the cities as a result. And, and so there's, there's a Japanese angle to this because they are plagued by so many of these issues. I mean, yeah, volcanoes and earthquakes aren't quite climate but it's nature yes the effects of of natural disasters yes and so there's there's always been a desire in humanity to mitigate these disasters stop them from happening at least make them make it less bad or so extreme and and so it's it's that idea that we can't control the weather but we certainly wish that we could yeah it's the one rain dances and all that. Yeah. It's one of the facets of nature that humanity has never been able to exert any sort of control over. We've tamed animals. We've learned to work the soil. We can breed vegetation and stuff like that, but we can't do anything about the weather. We are always at the mercy of the weather. We can't, stop a hurricane or a tornado we can get out of their way or we can survive them that is the best that we can do yeah and like if you live in a very hurricane prone area uh best to put your house on stilts that, that sort of thing you, you learn how to develop around it as best you can yeah and not only that but the notion of being able to control the weather that would make mankind incredibly powerful. 
And I think there's a facet of, uh, of, and I think that idea plays into it as well. The ethics of it. Yeah. It would, that would be an incredibly powerful thing to be able to control. Yeah, sure. When you just make it like sunny and 72 all the time and then plan rain to be just on certain days and have everybody agree, oh, make, let's just make Wednesday the day that it rains, everybody, and yeah. just have it have it uh, rain on us just as just exactly how much we want. It's basically like a clouds become just our irrigation system. We can just shut on and off. Yeah. And, I mean, you could really uh, go all kinds of places with this idea. But yeah, it would be an incredibly huge amount of power. And if you can control that, I mean... You, the next step would probably be trying to control weather in space. <laughs> just trying to mitigate uh, stuff like solar flares even. Yeah. I mean, you really go hog wild with, with this notion of being able to control things to this extent. I know. And so it's, it's exciting, but at the same time, a little bit terrifying. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of responsibility and clearly if, if the wrong person got a hold of such technology it would be disastrous in which that that we've seen plenty of in, in movies and stories yeah and, uh, all over the place yeah and the, and it's something that the movie does touch upon because the professor says it tells goro we have to keep this secret because this is potentially more powerful than nuclear weapons but it's not only rain dances that you see this in there's it's as old as storytelling itself. Even when we talk about the trope, uh, you see it in uh, several times in, in Greek mythology, most notably in uh, it's Iphigenia, the daughter of King Agamemnon. She's offered as a human sacrifice to Artemis so that they can become the Archean fleet so they won't have any winds so, the, so they can get to their destination. And then you see it in the Odyssey because... Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Aeolus, the keeper of the winds, gives Odysseus and his crew bags filled with the four winds, and then the crew opens it while Odysseus is sleeping and lets the winds out, and it blows their ship off, of course. So it's something that mankind has always been fascinated with, and back then, the attempts to control the weather had more to do with magic and ritual, and now it's focused more on technology. Yeah, and then um, I remember seeing Clash of the Titans, uh, Harryhausen version from 81, and uh, it opens with the tsunami that Poseidon creates. There are a few real-world examples of trying to projects that are about trying to control the weather. And not unlike how they do it in this movie, too, with with cloud seeding. Yes, generally the same idea as... uh, well, Project Storm Fury, which uh, was started in the uh, 1960s, and it was an effort to seed hurricanes with silver iodide in order to affect the hurricane's strength. So you're trying to sap the hurricane's strength before it approaches land, which, if you just get that, that is a, a good thing that you want to try to do, sure. But it ended up not working, and like for for a while they thought it actually worked, but it was more it's because of the the eye wall replacement cycle and just the general life cycles of hurricanes that like they they sort of thought that oh the project worked, but then uh, th- then later on you realize oh no there are actual scientific processes at work in, in the dynamics of how hurricanes work over time. And so, unfortunately, that didn't work. It would be nice if we could do that, though. I mean, we've had a lot of very bad Especially weather in events. Especially rec- uh, yeah, yeah. in year. recent events, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
but it ended up not working. And then there's there's also another weather control project that was a, a bit more uh, um, <laughs> a- ambitious, ambitious, as well maybe as, even uh, almost humorous in a way. Uh, it was something I stumbled across. It was called Operation Popeye right. from 1967, March 1967 to July 1972. So it was concurrent with the, with this movie. It was done by the U.S. military. The goal of this was to seed clouds to extend the monsoon season in Asia. This was a Vietnam War effort. The goal was to make the monsoon season last longer so they could disrupt North Vietnamese supply trucks. Yeah, rain out the enemy. Yeah. And this whole thing was secret. Yeah, the whole thing was covert. Yeah, the whole it was covert and you know they were gonna they wanted to cause landslides and Yeah, water's pretty destructive. Yeah. Yeah, the goal was yeah, the the goal was to increase the rainfall in North Vietnam to disrupt enemy supply trucks by softening roads, causing landslides, and washing out washing out river crossings and saturating soil. Interesting combination of things. Yeah. Yeah. And they would do this by flying they would fly out of Thailand. And go over Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia with it would fly two sorties a day with C 130s and F 4C Phantoms seeding clouds. I think it's pretty safe to say they didn't really accomplish anything. <laughs> but it's just can you imagine being one of the pilots who gets selected for this? And interestingly, it was supposedly sponsored by Henry Kissinger and the CIA, but it was done without authorization from Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird. So that should tell you something. I'm guessing yeah, when you're probably it is secret from other cabinet members, like defense, especially. That's yeah, I'm guessing it's something that Mr. Laird probably would have said, you're wasting resources on this. <laughs> well, it's not just the the resources and everything, but just it's I, I don't know exactly who would have had to think about this. It's a very unique idea, but at the same time, it's uh, even this didn't succeed either, did it? As far as I could tell, no. no. <laughs> I mean, but there were some lasting effects from Operation Popeye, not the least of which being that there were congressional resolutions that were brought in the mid-1970s that banned weather warfare. That is an actual term, weather warfare. Yeah, in the United States. And then in 1977, the UN held a convention in Geneva that addressed this issue. It was on the, quote, prohibition of military or any other hostile use of environmental modification technologies. It was signed on May 18th, 1977. It took effect October 5th, 1978. So believe it or not, there are both domestic and international laws on the books dealing with weather control. Which, since there are conventions on stuff like biological and chemical weapons and, and various other things, I think that it's not too much of a, a stretch to, especially in the light of a project like this, which I'm sure made pretty big news when it came out. But I, I think this really was the, the driving force behind, oh, okay, then we need to make a convention about this particular thing. I wonder if it's also kind of being done almost as a preventative message, right? A preventative measure, a pre a preemptive measure, you know, saying that we don't have technology like this yet, but we're putting laws on the books for the time that we do. It's almost like seeing science fiction stories coming to life. 
Mm-hmm. But you're thinking, it's like, really, this can't happen. This can't really happen, can it? I mean, we were talking before we started recording. There's already people talking about passing laws related to artificial intelligence. And that seems so yeah, far away. Yeah, particularly the idea of using robots as an army to, to yeah. murder people with. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's such. it just seems like, oh, come on. You know, you've been watching too many movies or something like that. But oh, not, not in the stuff I've been reading about Japan and how far they've gone in robotics level and how far everybody yeah. else in America is too. And Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah just, so. it's just one of those things. The, the longer we live, the more science fiction is becoming fact. Yeah. And the more... I mean, to me, like the the less you, it's the less you need conspiracy theories when stuff like this has already happened in our history. Uh, like going back to the Vietnam War with weather control, and, and so like, who needs conspiracy theories when all this stuff's actually really did happen? Yeah, uh, it seems like there's enough science fiction now in our daily lives than there, than than there is needing to invent anything else to to explain things. It's like it's right there in front of us. Yeah. But now, uh, before we move on, just for fun, I wanted to bring up a few examples of other uses of weather control as a trope in science fiction, you know, in stories. Um, so a few. Yeah, that I mentioned I, Superman three already. Yeah, you already mentioned Superman three. Using 3. the, uh, yeah, the satellite. weather satellites, weather yeah, satellites, yeah, cause uh, massive, uh, very specific weather. Yes. <laughs> issues. Yeah, but uh, a few that I've uh, that I uh, that I've been exposed to was uh, back in the early eighties. Uh, the G.I. Joe cartoon had a miniseries called The Revenge of Cobra, and the plot of the week in that one was Cobra, which is a terrorist organization, had built a device called the Weather Dominator. It's such an impeccable nice name. Nice branding. Yeah, it's, it's such an impeccable name. I love it. And it would they would use it to you know cause snowstorms and deserts and things like that, You know, completely disrupting the, the weather patterns across the world. There was also, uh, for Mystery Science Theater fans, overdrawn at the memory bank. Oh, my gosh. The, the, the HX-368 computer controls all the weather. And then when, uh, oh, my gosh, Royal Julia gets <laughs> stuck, Julia. In, stuck in the, the uh, computer, then he starts messing around with the weather. And it talks about, like, uh, uh, par- you know, par- houses of parliament flooding and all of these ex- insane weather uh, events. Yeah. And then another one I had was uh, from a video game I played as a child. It was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game on the NES. Unlike in the arcade game, they added a couple of extra levels, one of which was one where Krang, the villain, builds a spherical weather control machine that makes it snow in New York City. And at the end of that level, after you fight the boss, you destroy the thing and as happens usually with in fiction when you do this, it just magically makes everything better. All mm. the snow just disappears mm. in about 10 seconds, and then one of the turtles walks up on the screen and says, Spring is here. Another one uh, is uh, another mystery science theater related one is Invasion of the Neptune Man. And the invaders, they somehow, even though they only have like what, one ship, really? I haven't seen that episode yet. You know, so. They just have one ship, I think, but somehow they are able to cause weather all over the earth they, they cause the temperature to uh, lower dramatically so that's a so that it's snowing and all this stuff i thought oh and they didn't even explain really why how they could do it or anything but uh like the idea of just alien invaders messing with our weather to affect us yeah and then a, a more benign example i had was Many planets in the Star Trek universe, including Earth, have weather control technology that they use to create 
a more idyllic environment on their planets, which would explain why when you get you, know, you watch a movie like Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, when that Tootsie Roll from Outer Space probe shows up and it's disrupting all of their weather, why they were ill-equipped to deal with it because they probably hadn't had to deal with things like hurricanes and all of that in centuries by that point. Mm-hmm. And then a last one I have, and this is... This actually isn't weather control on on a huge scale. It's a very it's more on a smaller, more controlled scale. Which is if uh, if you read or watch the Hunger Games, the game makers for the Hunger Games are able to manipulate the weather within the arena to do whatever the heck that they want it to do. So if they can you know make it snow or make it rain, whatever on a whim to increase the drama of what's going on in the games. Moving on to our next topic, uh, this is uh, extreme weather. It kind of dovetails with uh, the idea of controlling the weather. But uh, like so far this year, we've had a lot of very, very, very bad extreme weather. I've studied hurricanes for a very long time. Not officially, but just sort of I've been an aficionado of them since I was like seven years old with uh, Hurricane Gilbert. It's a very amazing phenomenon to to witness and everybody's just so many people are glued to their television whenever one of these bad hurricanes is about to uh, make contact with the U.S. Yeah. mainland. I have some very vivid memories uh, being a child and watching things like the, the news coverage of Hurricane Andrew. Yeah, I remember that too. I was like 11 years old, I think. Mm-hmm. Was, and the way extreme weather can sometimes work is it can change the course of history. I mean, disasters can change the course of history, too. Um, one of them would be the, the Kanto earthquake in Japan that yes. changed the course of history. But And also it, it can change the way civilizations work. I mean, are, the one theory for why uh, the, the Egyptian society did not do so well for quite a while there was it was a, a chain of disasters that once one was over, the after effects of that – fed into the cause of another one. Um, and it can, it, can, it can sometimes take out entire empires. You know, if, you, if you look at the way history has, has worked and tsunami, when you, back then, you, there were no warning systems whatsoever. It just came and it wiped out whole cities. Also, recently, we have the effects that the drought in Syria had. Uh, and, and that is, I mean, I would definitely cover droughts as extreme weather too. And uh, droughts can affect whole societies that can it can cause wars that can cause resource uh, major resource losses and they can be threats to national security if they're bad enough or to to give uh, an american example you had the dust bowl uh, during the 30s yeah that changed the course of society too oh yeah it caused so many people to uh, move away especially in uh, like texas panhandle oklahoma panhandle that area that was pretty much the epicenter i think yeah Extreme weather events can also really tell us a lot about how vulnerable so many places are. There's so many cities in this country that are built on rivers or they were built in former swamps or right on the coast or right where a bay is, where if the wrong storm comes into the bay, then, then all hell breaks loose. They're like New Orleans. Yeah. I was going to say, I was thinking of New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, And this year, Houston, I mean, there are so many uh, places that are, they're so vulnerable. And yeah, I, I was in college at the time when Katrina struck there, the school actually put together a, I guess you could call it a, a weekend missions trip. The, they got a bunch of the students together 
and we, we uh, drove straight down to Louisiana. We didn't go to New Orleans. We went to a city nearby. It was called Slidell, and we spent the whole weekend going down there and working with the, the people there for hurricane relief. So we were gathering debris and getting out of the way or helping people rebuild their houses. It was, it was a very interesting experience going there and seeing the after effects of a hurricane. I mean, seeing these people, you know, bringing out stuff from their house and just leaving it by the roadside, bathtubs and all kinds of just these weird ons and ends of just piling it up. In uh, 2005, I was I followed that hurricane season very heavily because there were just so many of them. Uh, I was uh, doing my graduate degree, and I, I ended up doing a seminar class in my second year, uh, which was a two-year program, and I it was on uh, Hurricane Katrina. And then uh, I did a my essentially what was my master's thesis on the 17th Street levee breach which was the, I believe that was the biggest levee breach of any one of them that happened in New Orleans for Katrina. And so it was trying to explain just how does something like that happen? And it's very, uh, I would say, depressing to to just see how much of a failure that, that it was that occurred there. And I don't know how to get out of it. I mean, when you have a city that's sinking like this and everything too, it's... Uh, it's too much to take, really. And I know I know friends that got caught in uh, the, the flooding in Houston this year um, due to Harvey. It was just very bad. Next, we can move to the, the three non-nuclear principles, because this was something that was going on in Japan right when this movie was released, and it's very important in the overall scheme of Godzilla. Yes, this was a parliamentary resolution, not a law, that was outlined by Prime Minister Isaku Sato in 1967 and was adopted by the Diet in 1971. To to put it succinctly, these were three statements that Japan was making in terms of their attitude and and their in their attitude and approach to nuclear weapons. One, Japan shall not possess nuclear weapons. Two, Japan shall not produce nuclear weapons. And three, Japan will not introduce nuclear weapons into its territories. Yeah, the one time that there actually were nu- nuclear weapons, uh, they, they did find out about that eventually, and they weren't very happy about it. Yeah. During, during Sato's first term as prime minister, he promised to end the U.S. occupation of Okinawa, which had become a hot-button issue, because it was believed the Americans were harboring nuclear weapons in their bases. Which they were. Yeah. Yeah. So as a compromise... Sato brought Japan into the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in exchange for Japan controlling Okinawa and excluding nuclear weapons. And then to protect against the principles restricting Japan's defense, Sato placed them within the larger framework of the Four Pillars Nuclear Policy. So the four points of that are, one, to promote the peaceful use of nuclear power, two, to work toward global nuclear disarmament, three, to rely on the extended U.S. nuclear deterrent, and four, to support the three non-nuclear principles. The last one allowed for changes to be made in the future while calling for Japan to abide by them, quote, under the circumstances where Japan's national security is guaranteed by the other three policies, end quote. And for all of this, Sato was actually awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 1974. 
Anti-nuclear sentiment, of course, is one thing we've talked about plenty in this, in this podcast, and uh, obviously Japan's uh, very opposed to a lot of things overall with anything nuclear. And of course, with uh, the 311 disasters, we've uh, they've gone even more to that, and there are many nuclear plants are still shut down. Well, it's not just with nuclear weapons. They have very similar attitudes toward weapons of mass destruction in general. They've signed on with UN agreements about chemical weapons and biological weapons as well. So it's not like they're just, because of their history, they're just shunning one WMD over others. Yeah, they're opposed to all of them. Yeah, which is probably a smart move. And again, you know, I have a feeling if, you know, to go back to the movie a little bit, if weather control technology would probably fall under a similar attitude because as Professor Kasumi points out, this is potentially more powerful than a nuclear bomb. Yeah, sure. Given how disaster prone Japan already is, they would probably want to have that tightly regulated. With the pressure that is kind of building on Japan recently with wanting to get more military power in a form of deterrence, there has it has been talked about that Japan should consider having nuclear weapons specifically for the purpose of deterrence. I know this is something that's been talked about recently in the United States about what how they thought certain people in the in the United States thought how Japan should work. I don't I really don't see that happening. Just because not only of the non-nuclear principles but and because of 311 but just the sentiment in, in Japan I, I think you'd only be able to scrape up like a small minority in, in Japan that would even be for having nuclear deterrence. I would have to agree with you just on for, there. Yeah, just for there's the just, fact of possessing the weapons in the first place. Yeah, there's just too there's just too much anti-nuclear sentiment built up in their culture. I don't think they could do it. Yeah, it's it, like there's so many nuclear plants closed now and trying, you know, the power companies that are trying to get these nuclear plants to open back up, they there is a big grassroots response quite often to the point where they're like, "Okay, never mind." And and they just back off of it. However, it's not good for the energy pool for for Japan, though, because they have to import even more energy and they have to pay more for it. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's a catch 22, one of many. Yeah. And the mix of of the different types of energies in Japan uh, has changed dramatically as a result of all these nuclear plants being shut down. Um, It it really is like a no win situation. Um, Very, very tough to have to put up with. Because we talk about the Japanese national spirit in, in our podcast, like what what do you think we come away with for what the expression of the Japanese national spirit is in this movie? Well, there's certainly a little bit of a commentary um, given about education in yeah, this. That's the, what I because Goro Goro compares Godzilla teaching Minya to a Japanese education fanatic who won't let his children play. So, and I've, I've seen and read a lot of things that speak to this Japanese penchant for overachievement, particularly in school. Oh yeah. So there's, I know it's a little bit of a stereotype, you know, that if, you know, if you're, especially in the United States where they assume, Oh, if you're Asian, you must be super smart and work really hard. But that is a thing. 
and it's culturally cram, based cram school and all that yeah too. it's yeah. it's a culturally based thing mm-hmm. it, it's funny that anybody in this country makes fun of that because you know barely like half of the students in this country can pass basic exams yeah the only other thing I can think of right now is that Japan's economy did extremely well, as usual, because it's the golden 60s. Their economy grew 11.08% in just one year. <laughs> it's amazing. But, of course, there is plenty more, uh, plenty more direction to go up uh, in the next years. I think that about does it for uh, part three. I think what we can do is we can go on to our next film in the next episode. Uh it will be Destroy All Monsters from 1968. I'm looking forward to this one. It's a fan favorite. Oh, yeah. The fans love it. And uh, I saw it pretty, actually, late in my Godzilla viewing uh, career. Not particularly late, but I guess in the second half of the movies, I think. I was about 16 when I saw it the first time. I really love it. It's fun. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Churchill, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara.